Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. We welcome all of you who are joining us, whether you're joining us in person here in our gym or in the greater St. Louis area at 850 KFUO AM or worldwide on KFUO.org. Welcome all of you to our study of God's Word here this morning. Uh, let me do a couple housekeeping things first of all. You may be wondering, where is Reverend Smith? Who's this guy here? Uh, he is not able to be with us today, and we'll be back next Sunday. And secondly, he and I talked, um, and he has just enough material to finish Ephesians on the 22nd of May. That's if I don't do anything in Ephesians today. So I told him, rather than uh, we'd end up with a you know, standalone session at the end of the study, I said, I will do something different today then, okay? So just again to lay this out, he will be back next week, the uh, 8th, and he'll do the 8th, the 15th, and the 22nd, and finish Ephesians, okay? Then we'll be coming in and probably pick up the study of Luke. You remember last summer, we did the study of Luke over the summer. He'll be taking the summer off, as he usually does, and then we'll continue the study of Luke. We'll have to find out where we left off, quite frankly. I can't remember myself. But we'll uh, carry on Luke into the fall then when uh, Reverend Smith will return and obviously doing a different book uh, at that time. Okay? So that's kind of where we're at. So the big question you have on your minds, what are we going to do today? What's this guy going to do today here? We're going to look at the last part of Matthew 19 and 20, which at Matthew 20, the first portion, which is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. One of my favorite parables, and we'll talk about that. And first of all, though, what leads up to that parable, which is very important. Okay, so I'm going to turn to Matthew 19, and it'll be the latter part of 19. Let's begin, though, with a word of prayer, as we always do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son's life and death and resurrection as we continue to celebrate that great news to us. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And we thank you for the fact that just as he is risen, so he also will raise us on the last day to new life with new glorified bodies, reunified with our soul and forever in your presence with one another, all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we thank you for your life-giving and life-sustaining word to us as well, and for the opportunity to gather together and study that word here this morning. We pray your blessing upon us, your Holy Spirit's presence and guidance as we do so, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's turn to Matthew 19, and we're actually going to start with verse 16 of Matthew 19, and we'll kind of work our way toward that parable, and uh, then talk about what that parable means for us and for all people. But starting with 19, verse 16, and I'd like to, let's first of all read through the section that is before chapter 20. So we'll go, kind of go through the, get that whole section uh, together, hear it all together, and then we'll go back to verse 16 again and start working through it bit by bit, okay? So starting with verse 16, and behold, a man came up to him, up to Jesus obviously, saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, the man, 
Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Okay, so that's kind of that section leading up to the parable itself. And I always say that whenever you're doing a parable, take a look at what just happened or what people just said, because many times Jesus will tell a parable in response to what has just occurred or something the disciples have said or something the Pharisees and Sadducees have said and he will spring into a parable. Rarely does he just spring into a parable out of the blue. Many times that context is extremely important. It certainly is in this case. Okay, So let's go back to verse 16. And the man comes up to him saying, Teacher. Now that's our first little clue. In the Gospel of Matthew, when people come up, and are in great humility and address Jesus as Lord or as Son of David, things tend to go well for them. It's just a matter of fact. You look through the Gospel of Matthew, that's the way it is. When people come up and call him teacher, uh, things tend not to go as well. And it's either one of two things... Either they're calling him teacher just in the sense of a rabbi, a rabbi of the day, or they're calling him teacher because it reveals something about their understanding of who Jesus is or who Jesus is not. Okay? 
But you look through the Gospel of Matthew, and this is consistent. Uh, People come up and call him Lord, which again reveals how they are feeling about him, his identity, who he really is, this Jesus of Nazareth. Or they call him a teacher, just a rabbi, just a run-of-the-mill rabbi. Now, we don't know what the motives of this young man uh, are, what the motives are. Um, We don't have any reason to believe, at least from the context, that he's somehow trying to trick Jesus or somehow trying to uh, go against Jesus. we We just don't know. He kind of comes off as just a rather pious, uh, misguided, <laughs> with respect to salvation, uh, and, and obviously wealthy person. Okay, And I don't think we really have a right to read anything else into this. Uh, it, it's simply just not there in the text. Now, the most notorious guy who calls Jesus teacher. Anybody want to take a shot? Who would be the most notorious guy who called Jesus teacher? Who? No, not Nicodemus, although he did. I think he did. Yeah, Judas. And um, let's take a look. In fact, you can stay right in Matthew at uh, Matthew 26. So just kind of keep your finger here. Let's just go six chapters uh, later. We want to take a look at Matthew 26, and we want to look at verse 25. Matthew 26, verse 25. Now, let's remember, this is Maundy Thursday evening. This is not, this is not Judas just coming up to Jesus out of the blue, as if he doesn't know him, hasn't been with him, hasn't seen miracles, hasn't... Uh, been on the receiving end of his teachings, and notice what he says. This is in the upper room. After Jesus has revealed to the disciples that one of them is going to betray him. Okay? And the disciples are all kind of a flutter about this. Obviously, they should be. And notice what Judas says in verse 25. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Kind of interesting, isn't it? Is it I, teacher? Doesn't say Lord. Is it I, rabbi, or teacher? And then the most uh, famous of all, if you go down to verse 49, verse 49, and this is, of course, later on the same evening when Judas leads the uh, uh, temple guard uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane, to arrest Jesus. Okay, verse 49. And he, that would be, again, Judas, came up to Jesus and once, once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And notice how Jesus, we won't spend much time on this, but notice what Jesus says in response. Calls him what? Friend. Actually a term of, of endearment. But... Just to point out, we could look at others, we just don't have time to look at a bunch of other examples, but there are other examples, especially now we're talking again about in the Gospel of Matthew, that whenever someone comes up in great humility and addresses Jesus as Lord, or especially Son of David, 
uh, calls him Jesus, son of David. That is, again, revealing something in their heart in terms of how they see Jesus. Okay? It'd be just like if I, if I um, went up to President Biden and instead of calling him President Biden, referred to him as Joe or uh, Mr. Biden, right? That would be revealing something about me, right? But if I went up to him and called him President Biden or uh, Mr. President or something like that, recognizing his title and who he is. So again, we get the same thing with Jesus in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay? And it reveals, I think, again, something about the people who come up to him and what their feeling is about him. It may be that this guy just didn't know, didn't, didn't have access to the knowledge at this point. Anyway, let's go on. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, in that question, we as Lutherans, I think, uh, begin to shudder, don't we? I mean, our, our Lutheran antenna uh, extend, and we say, what? What's wrong with that question? That seems like a, a real nice, honest question. What's wrong with that question? Yeah. <laughs> Notice how it's, what can I do? What can I do to inherit eternal life, right? And the problem is, what's the answer to that question? Yeah, unfortunately, there is nothing that that young man or anyone else can do to inherit eternal life, right? And the young man is going to be learning about that. He comes with this context that he really can do things to inherit eternal life. He simply wants to ask this great teacher, Jesus, what's the secret? What's the true knowledge? What can I do? Tell me, because I... So, you know, again, the, the surface meaning here, or the surface understanding seems to be that this guy is really sincere. He really wants to know, what can I do? And, you know, again, we know, we have the advantage of of the what we call the analogy of Scripture, looking at other places where the Bible speaks on how we gather salvation. We have passages like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where Paul writes, remember, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, not because of works, lest any man should boast, right? Or Romans 3.28, we read every Reformation Sunday, we hold that a man is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Or by works of the law shall no man be justified before God, also in Romans 3. So we have the advantage of all these other scriptures and have the quote-unquote rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, right? This young man does not know, doesn't have any of that, does, hasn't doesn't exist yet, actually. And he, again, seems very earnest in his, what must I do to have eternal life? Are there people around today just like this guy? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I fear some are even within the Christian church. And again, I don't want to, uh, as I said on, I think it was Easter I said this in the sermon, that there are only two religions in the world, Right? There's the religion of man, and that religion of man asks this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then there is the religion of God or Christianity, which emphasizes not what I do or don't do, 
but what God has done for me. The arrow is in the other direction. It's from God to us. And that distinguishes Christianity from all the so-called religions of man. You know, you just go down the list. They all will emphasize what you must do. This young man would fit in perfectly with all of those religions because he wants to do it himself. And I fear that especially in the United States, in America, with our work ethic, uh, so-called American work ethic, although sometimes I begin to wonder about that too, but uh, that I think we are, we are very susceptible, aren't we, to that kind of thinking because we want to say that we can at least do a part of it, you know. We, we're, maybe we're content with, well, God will do 90%, but I want to do at least 10%, you know. I don't want, I don't want to be a freeloader, and no, you, God wants you to be a freeloader when it comes to this. It is all his work, and he gives it to you, you know, totally free. Okay, we've got to get that through our heads. So, yes, was there a question? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, so those, for, those, for those on the radio and maybe some others in here, uh, the, Ella, the Lutheran Study Bible, uh, you feel kind of weakens it. What must I do to have eternal life? Or Yeah, I think the idea of inheriting something is even, you know, a little bit stronger perhaps. Is it what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. All right, that's interesting. Now, the Lutheran Study Bible should be ESV. Do you have the Concordia Self-Study Bible, which is NIV? Okay. Okay. I've got, I was reading ESV here, so I'm not sure. Yeah? Get? The NIV says get. Okay. Dennis? Yeah, okay, let's, yeah, let's, let's get, get, get into this, because uh, Jesus is going to do a little back and forth with this guy, which is kind of interesting. So let's go to verse 17. And um, he, Jesus, said to him... Why do you ask me about what is good? Now, the me should be emphasized here because grammatically, it's to the front of the sentence in the Greek. In other words, Jesus is saying, why are you asking me about what's good? Right? So Jesus is trying to get into this guy's head here a little bit, although, of course, he knows. But he's, he's trying to say, well, if you want to know what's good, why are you asking me? Right? If I'm just a teacher... And then he goes on, notice there, and he says, there is only one who is good. Who would be the one who is good? God. Yeah. And so he's in effect saying to this guy, how come you're asking me about what's good? There's only one who is good. So in other words, Jesus is kind of perceiving that, again, this guy thinks he's just the teacher, not the son of God, not the one who truly is good, even though he is. So he's kind of playing back and forth with this guy a little bit, right? What could Jesus have come out and said? There's nothing you can do to earn eternal life. Simply follow me. Jesus is going to get to the follow me, but he's going to have a little twist and turn here with him to get him to that point, okay? So let's go on. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, is there anything wrong with that statement? If we could keep the commandments, there's, there's the issue. If we could keep the commandments perfectly and without fail, 
Well, I just thought of something else. But all right, let's, first, let me ask a question. If we could keep the commandments perfectly, would we have eternal life? Be careful here. Some say yes, some say no. What even before we do a thing, take a breath, we have original sin. Now, on the other hand, I know. Here comes the comeback. I just thought of this. What I just thought of. If we didn't have original sin, we could keep. But if we were not sinful, there would be the, the option or the possibility, right? Okay. The point is here. Jesus is saying, if you want to, if you want to get eternal life, keep the commandments. What's the problem here for the guy and for all of us? Can't do it. Can't do it. Right. Uh, Hebrews, if you've broken just one part of God's law, you're guilty of the whole thing, right? The whole, the whole law, okay? So uh, keep the commandments, Jesus says. And actually, this is what Moses taught. And this is what the rabbis would have been expected to say, would have been quoting back to Moses and so on. And notice here, the guy takes it. He's satisfied so far. He says to Jesus, which ones? <laughs> so he's not, he's not daunted by keeping the commandments. He's not thinking to himself, I can't. But uh, Rabbi, which ones? Surely you don't mean all, right? So interesting here. Jesus starts off by saying, he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's go back for a moment. We have, we call, in fact, I would just, we, the confirmands and we just went through this on our retreat uh, yesterday. There's two tables of the law, right? First table of law, commandments one through three, dealing with our relationship with God. Second table, four through ten, obviously, there's only two tables, so that's pretty easy. And dealing with our relationship with Neighbors, yeah, other people, okay? Notice here, which table exclusively does Jesus use with this man? Second table. He goes first to the second table of the law because, as we're going to see, this guy thinks he's perfect on that, on that count. And then Jesus will get to the first table of law with him, which is the real problem with this guy, okay? But interesting... Uh, Jesus goes to the second table exclusively to start out. And what's this guy's reaction? Does he say, oh, come on, teacher, you've got to be kidding. All these I have kept. Okay? So in other words, tell me something new. Right? He's, he's in effect rejecting Jesus' response as being sort of lacking or insufficient. There must be something more. Come on, I've, I've done all this. Now, has he really done all this? Yeah? Okay, yeah, even ignoring the last statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is a summary of the entire second table of the law. But has he, has he kept, really, the other ones? No. Wow. So... If I were to get up on Sunday morning and uh, in the pulpit and say, now how many of you have broken the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill? How many hands do you think would go up? 
I hope, I hope none. <laughs> Looked a little, little hesitant here. I hope none. Um, but you remember what Jesus did with this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Listen. You have heard it was said to those of old, in other words, from Moses, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So now, how many of us have broken the fifth commandment? Right? I'll put my hand up as well. So Jesus is, you know, that's one thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He taught as one having authority. He didn't simply mouth all the, what all the rabbis were saying about the teachings of Moses. And this young man may have outwardly been keeping the fifth commandment in that he never killed anyone or murdered anyone. Um, let's, um, you know, Luther's commandment goes a lot further than, uh, Luther's explanation of the commandment, right, goes a lot further than simply murdering someone, right? To fear and love God that you may not, what? Hurt or harm your neighbor in his body. I bet some of us have done that, right, at one point or another. Uh, but help and befriend him in every bodily need. They keep changing the translations on these explanations. I got them down and then they change it. Uh, how about the Sixth Commandment? This guy probably has not... He's thinking, I've never um, committed adultery. You remember what Jesus said about the Sixth Commandment in the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right. So again, if Jesus were to go that route, this guy is guilty. We are all guilty. Anybody standing around is guilty, even though we may, you know, think to ourselves, well, I haven't murdered anyone, or I haven't outwardly committed adultery with anyone. And again, Jesus is after not only the outward act on the part of a person, but what's in a person's heart, right? And that's, that's what matters before God just as much, if not more, okay? So, the guy, again, the guy is very confident. I, all these things I have kept from my youth, he's thinking to himself anyway, what do I still lack? In other words, there must be something more, and there is. Notice what Jesus uh, says to him. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect. Notice Jesus is not acknowledging that the guy is perfect, right? Jesus is not saying, because you are perfect, if you would be perfect. You want to be perfect. It's a, an indefinite uh, thing to come. Um, uh, be perfect. Go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now, which table of law is this dealing with? First, right? Because he's calling him to follow him as God, as Savior. And Jesus is now getting him to the point to reveal what is really in his heart. And uh, verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, he goes away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Is it having the great possessions that's the problem? No, 
What's the problem in relationship to these great possessions? They were more important. They were his, say God, right? If we're talking about, again, the first table, the first commandment even, he goes away heartbroken because of his great possessions, but especially because of his, the way he holds those great possessions uh, and what he holds them to be uh, in his mind. Now, we should not assume, should we, that going and selling everything you have is a prerequisite to follow Jesus. No. We don't see that in other cases. We do see it here. Why do we see it here? Because Jesus knows what's in this young man's heart, right? It is a very subtle way of preaching the law to this particular young man to reveal his sin. So I don't, we don't want to take from this that anybody who follows Jesus, we have to first go, you know, this isn't prescriptive, in other words, for everybody who wants to follow Jesus, that they have to go and sell everything they have and then follow him. I'm sure down through history there have been some charlatans who have insisted that people sell everything they have and give to what? Not the poor, but to the, yeah, to the leader and uh, follow him. But no, this is, not, this is not a prerequisite, okay? Now, let's just talk for a moment. Um, what are the dangers? I'm not saying... Well, first of all, let's put it this way. If we are blessed with great material wealth, is that a problem? No. In fact, we should thank God for that, right? Now, what are the potential dangers, though? Just as there are dangers with any other blessing that we receive in life... What are some possible uh, dangers that could occur with great wealth? Okay, put our faith in the wealth itself and trust in that rather than true God. So trust in how big my 401k is instead of trusting in God. Okay? Again, that's not the problem that my 401k, it's a problem with me, right, in my relationship to that. Okay, any others? Okay, if that becomes your primary concern in life, about how to build that thing up to be more and more and more, then again, it's your, it's your main focal point, isn't it? Right? And we could go on and on. I mean, uh, you look, and uh, I will say this too, the most, one of the most misquoted Bible passages is, you will hear people make this statement, money is the root of all evil. Is that accurate? No. Look it up. It is the love of money, or the actual lusting after money, is the way we could uh, translate that, that is the root of all evil, right? And we look through human history and see that uh, to be the case, okay? All right, I'm looking at the clock here. Yeah, bud? But don't we all have that Don't we all have that problem? Loving, yes. Okay, that's an excellent point. Can we truly say, if we, if we use Luther's explanation of the first commandment, can we truly say that 24-7, 365, we love, honor, and trust in God above all things? No, unfortunately. We have to repent of that sin too, don't we? And, and we know that. Uh, there are definitely times where I'm trusting even in myself, right, instead of God, or trusting in other people, or trusting in the size of my 401k, or whatever, whatever it might be in life, okay? 
So that's a good point. We all are, to some extent, stricken, stricken with that, right? And you know this young man stricken to the point where it is a roadblock for him following Jesus. And, of course, that gets to be the, the real conundrum for anyone that's in that position, right? All right, so, again, uh, let's, let's go on here. We, I would like to get to the parable. And um, so... Notice what Jesus says, Truly I say to you, with, with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there are a couple of, uh, the commentators are all over on this. The Jesus is really talking about an actual needle like we would use in sewing and a camel going through that. Another probably more probable uh, explanation is that there is a narrow gap in a wall that is called a needle back at that time. When you, when you had city walls that were built, there would be a narrow gap that would be a needle. And I, I've always favored that understanding of this, that Jesus is saying, you know, in essence, it's as hard to do that as it is to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And what they would usually, if, if, if the needle were just wide enough and the camel were just small enough, they could unpack whatever the camel's carrying, squeeze it on through, and put it all back on. In other words, it's not impossible, but it's very difficult to do. Okay? And so here Jesus is, is saying that it's as hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God as a camel to go through, harder than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Notice the reaction of the disciples here. They were greatly astonished. Why would they be greatly astonished when Jesus says, made that statement? The common understanding at that time, and the disciples here certainly share that understanding, is that if you were blessed with great wealth and possessions... That was a sign that you and God were just like that. That you and God were, you know, you were, you were uh, in good with God. Because just look at all the material blessings that he has given to you. And then the opposite they used to believe also. If you were strict, if you were poor, if you uh, had leprosy, if you were, you know... It, uh, in some great peril physically, just the opposite must be the case. You and God, you, you must, there must be something wrong in your relationship with God. Where we really see this is remember when Jesus and the disciples came across this guy, he was born blind, never saw a day in his life. And remember the question the disciples asked him, who sinned that this man should be born blind? Him? He or his parents, right? So see, they had this understanding that if you were wealthy, and especially if you were pious like this young guy was, he's trying, he's trying to find out the right thing to do, and they also believe the opposite. So that's why the disciples, you can just tell, they're shook to the core here. Because their belief system that they, had, they thought was correct, Jesus has just shattered. What? You mean the... the number of possessions that I have doesn't mean anything. In fact, it might even make it harder for me to enter the kingdom of God. They're just really shook to the core. And then notice the statement that Peter makes 
in verse 27 in response, which is also very revealing about what is going through the disciples' heads at this point. So Peter, of course, so often speaks up before, you know, he's, he's always speak first, think about it later. And uh, remember when Jesus told about he's going to go up to Jerusalem, he handed over chief priests, scribes, elders, he put to death, and on the third day rise again, no, Lord, this shall never happen to you, right? Then Jesus, get thee behind me, Satan, right? So here he says to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So in effect, what is Peter saying to Jesus? We've done it by works, haven't we? Look at what we have done. In other words, they're so shook, if this rich guy can't get in, what about us? You mean, maybe we won't get in? And then he calls to Jesus' attention, we've left everything and followed you, what will there be for us? Right? All right, we're kind of smiling here. Uh, Are we tempted to think in these same terms? What are some things that we might say today as if to, if to uh, you know, present our case to, to God that, you know, look at what we've done. What do you think? I come to church every Sunday, Lord. Yeah, just look at me. Right? I, I, um, I remember doing a sermon on this at the seminary way back, and I said, second career students, we don't have any seminarians in here today, I guess. Second career students could say, look at all I've sacrificed to come to the seminary. I left my job. I had to sell my house. Uh, I had to pull my kids out of school and move them here. What about me, Lord? Faculty members, what could they say at, at seminary? I could be in a major college or university with my, all the years I went to school, and I could be making a lot more money, Lord, than I'm making here. Look at me. Right? So... All of us, and again, this is a temptation we have, to say, look at all I've done, look at all I've, you know, dedicated here, and what about me, Lord? As if we deserve it, right, based on that. And that's simply just not the case, okay? All right, so that's what's going through their head. Now, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, um, let's see, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. In other words, the, when the new heaven and the new earth come. That word, that word, that's, that word, it's only one word in the Greek that's translated new world, is actually also translated regeneration. It's used in, um, in Titus, where, where baptism is referred to, Titus 3, 4, as the washing of regeneration and renewal. So Jesus here is talking about the time creation will be regenerated, will be uh, made new, the new heaven and the new earth. In other words, on starting, commencing with his second coming. So in this new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, there's a whole lot written on this, and I don't want to spend 20 minutes on it. But judges in the Old Testament, were they like Judge Judy or Judge Wapner uh, in a courtroom uh, judging cases? No. They were leaders of God's people. And they were sort of the precursor to the kings when God's people demanded a king. And that 
got them in all kinds of trouble as well. So they were leaders. Now, whether the term is used in that sense here, in other words, whether Jesus is hearkening back to the Old Testament and saying, you guys who left everything and followed will be like that. You'll be rulers in heaven. Or whether he's saying that they're going to play some role in the judgment, uh, we just don't know. It's, it's not, we just don't know what to make of this, quite frankly. And notice there, uh, it says the 12 tribes of Israel. We're not, we think, not, he's not signaling out that there's going to be some special judgment for the 12 tribes of Israel and then a special, you know, another judgment for everybody else. We think this 12 tribes might be a collective way of talking about the entire church, all those who by faith are sons of Abraham on that day, okay? And everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. In other words, don't worry about it. You're going to have more than you ever dreamt possible, right? So don't worry that there's going to be nothing for you. Don't worry you're not going to make it. Uh, it's going to be more than enough for you. And notice here, though, the last sentence. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. In other words, everything is going to be evened out, and those who are first now, or think they're first, might be last, might be later, those who are last now, or humble and last now, might be first. In other words, everything is going to be evened out on that day. There will not be the distinctions we have here on earth, uh, you know, with regard to have and have not, power and no power, and those types of things. And so those who are first now might be last. It will be all evened out. Okay? Now, now watch what's going to happen in this parable. So this is all leading up to the parable. Um, and notice what's going to happen in the parable now. Jesus is going to tell this parable in order to try and make this point clear to them. And, of course, to us and everybody else as well. Um, now, first of all, a parable, Sunday school definition, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It is a story that Jesus tells. He's not, he's not reporting something that actually happened. It's a story that he tells. He composes it. It contains earthly details, like a vineyard in this case, and workers in a vineyard. And it is told in order to teach something about life in the kingdom of God. And most times, the parables will turn on their head the way things on this earth operate in comparison to the way they operate in the kingdom of God. And this one is probably one of the most clear examples of that. In other words, life in the kingdom of God is going to be so different than life here on this earth. Now, let's read through the parable quickly. 16 verses. By the way, this is the second longest parable that Jesus tells the only one different is the servants who are given, you know, the amounts, the amounts of talents. That's the uh, only one that's longer. All right, starting at verse six, uh, 20, verse 1, rather. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. 
So they went, going out again, about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last work only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am not doing you I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. There's that verse again, kind of like bookends to the parable. All right. Let's just real quickly go through this and get to the meaning of this and apply it to our lives as well. Kingdom of heaven is like a uh, owner, a master of a house who goes out early in the morning to hire laborers. We think if you just use 6 a.m. as a starting point here, in other words, first of the day, dawn, goes out and hires laborers. This was common practice at this time. Common laborers would stand in the in the uh, midst of trap and uh, circulation of traffic and people and would be hired. They actually were lower in uh, society than slaves were. They didn't have the protection that the slaves did of having an actual master. And so they were just out there hoping that someone would hire them. So Jesus hires them. Sorry. Uh, the, the owner hires them and says, go out. And what's the, what's the pay that they get? They agree, don't they, on a denarius, which is the standard day's wage at that time. Okay? So everything's all fine. They go and work. Then he goes out the third hour. Now, by the way, he goes out the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, which would be 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., roughly speaking, if we use 6 a.m. as the starting point. And he just, notice there he goes out, uh, verse 4, uh, he goes out at the third hour, and he just he doesn't he doesn't say what he's going to pay him. He says, "I'll pay you what's right," and they go into the field. Okay, then the sixth and the ninth hour, he just you know tells them just go and work in the field. There's not uh, much uh, mentioned here at all, except just go into the field. Now, here's where we we've, we don't hear any more about those who were hired the third, the sixth, and the ninth hour. They kind of fade away, but they just they help complete the story but we don't hear about them coming to get paid later on. The main focal point is between those who were hired first and those who were hired last. Now the guy, he goes out the 11th hour. So keeping our clock in mind, what would the 11th hour be on the clock? Five o'clock, okay? So it's five o'clock now. And we have that phrase, the 11th hour, that's kind of applicable here in that sense too, isn't it? It's almost the end of the day. And he hires them to go in the field. What do you think they're probably thinking they're going to get? a little tiny bit, right? And here's what happens. At the end of the day, 
The uh, owner calls his foreman up and says, call the ones who were brought in last. Call them up first. And what do you think they thought when they get a denarius? I mean, their eyes must have popped, right? And then the ones who are hired first are thinking to themselves, what? Oh, boy, this is going to be a good day for us, right? And they get same thing, just a denarius. All right, let's stop for a minute. The vineyard, we don't have the time to look at Isaiah 5, but the vineyard is the kingdom of God. Take a note, just write Isaiah 5. In fact, God even says that he planted a vineyard, he watered it, and this is in Isaiah 5. Watered it, gave it fertilizer, gave it everything it had. When he came uh, for uh, fruit, he found uh, sour grapes. And he actually says there, my vineyard is the house of Israel. So we're not just making this up. It, it, so when an Israelite heard vineyard, he thinks kingdom of God. Okay? Who's the master of the vineyard? Who uh, hires the workers, so to speak? Yeah, you say God. They say God or Jesus, doesn't, either one. Uh, but God, I think, is the, probably the, the universal uh, understanding. And what is, now let's think about this in the kingdom of God, what is the quote-unquote pay that you get at the end of the day? Eternal life, right, eternal life. So let's think back to these disciples who thought that we deserve everything because, look, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. We've been with you for these three years now. And, you know, we're really deserving. And think in contrast to the thief on the cross. I don't know how much time elapsed before he died, but probably very little. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says what? Today you'll be with me in paradise, right? If we were to, if we were to follow out this parable and apply it to those two guys, a group of guys and guy, you think about the disciples would be the ones brought in first, wouldn't they? They'd be the ones hired at 6 a.m. They'd be the ones doing all the work. And the ones who think they deserve more, right? And the thief on the cross would be the one hired at the 11th hour, literally the 11th hour of his life. And so this is a parable, isn't it, all about grace, all about God's grace. He chooses to give everyone the full day's pay regardless of how long you've been in the vineyard, regardless of how much work you've done, regardless of it, you've been out in the heat of the day, slaving away, everybody gets the whole thing. And notice he goes, the owner of the vineyard in the parable goes back at the guy and says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my generosity, in other words? And notice, I think verse 21 is, is the real crux of this. I'm sorry, verse 12. Um, where the workers who were hired first say, you have made them, in other words, the ones who came in last, you've made them what? Equal to us. There's the real problem, isn't it? There's the real problem. Did those first guys, did those, did those 11th hour guys, uh, I mean, those, those guys hired at 6 a.m., did they have a problem when the owner gave the 11th hour people a whole day's pay? They had no problem with that. In fact, they thought, this is really good. The problem came when? When they got the same thing. You have made them equal to us. And in the kingdom of God, 
That's the way God's grace operates, right? Remember, I said that these parables often turn the ways of the world upside down and on their head. And here's a prime example. It is strictly God's grace that gives everybody everything. I don't care if you're in your last breath on your deathbed and you, pro- you confess a faith in Jesus Christ, and it's sincere. You get the whole day's wage. You get the whole thing, don't you? And how should we feel about that? Should we, be, should we begrudge that somebody on their deathbed is making a confession of faith and being saved? I would hope we'd rejoice in that, right? And here's something that, in fact, I, when I taught this another time, somebody made this comment. I had never thought about this before. What do we have that people outside the kingdom right now don't have? The ble- yeah, the blessing of living in the kingdom of God for all these years. Instead of outside the kingdom of God all these years, right? So we should rejoice that we're in the vineyard, that God has called us into the vineyard and has, has put us to work, so to speak, in the vineyard, okay? And anyway, so this is a parable in direct response to what those disciples were thinking about their own self-worthiness to receive a special place in the kingdom, right? And everybody gets everything. So again, the last might be first, and the first in might be last. Everybody equal, equally receives the bounty, the, the abundance of God's grace. We don't have time to look at it, but let me get this one point in. Think about this now. The very next thing that happens in the Gospel of Matthew, if you look ahead, is the mother of James and John come to Jesus and have a request of him. When you come in your kingdom, let you know these boys of mine, let one sit at your right and one at your left. Oh, must not have, I, yeah, we'll, we'll just say she probably didn't hear this parable, right? But it's an interesting juxtaposition. It, it just, again, goes right back immediately to the ways of the world. And she and her sons are probably thinking, again, this is going to be an earthly kingdom. You know, one can be vice president, one can be secretary of defense or something like that. And, again, you know, in her mind, again, it's all about comparisons and not being equal to somebody else. It's about my boys being above everybody else. Okay? Good thing for us to remember, isn't it, in the church, that it's God's grace given to all people, and we are equal recipients of that with all people. And we rejoice whenever a sinner repents, and comes into the kingdom. I think Bud was first, and then we got just a tiny bit of time. Well, to me, it goes back to the staple. Yes, I said, good teacher. Teacher? Yeah. The answer is, you know, literally, one is the good one. Right. I mean, that's, he's, he's, he's talking about the God. The one and only. Yeah, yeah. So again, for those on the radio, again, there's only as we go back to that conversation that he had with the rich young man, there is only one who is good. Yeah, and we all again are in need of God's grace and mercy. Steve, did you have a point? Yes. Okay. Good point. We talked about going to church every Sunday as maybe we something we might throw up into God's face. But again, let's remember 
Are we doing God a favor by coming to church? Other way around, right? We call it the divine service because God serves us when we come to worship and receive his gifts of word and sacrament. Okay? I'll try to keep reminding you of that, yes. All right. Uh, we are out of time. Thank you very much. Let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.